Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm going to find you a secretary much better than me. Am I? See, I'm going to find you a secretary who knows the difference and cares. Why would you say LOL instead of just laughing at something? I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And this is the Nerdette Podcast. Greta. Trisha. So close to Doctor Who time. Oh, wow. You sound remarkably calm given the number of hours you have until this happens. I know. The 50th anniversary special simulcast worldwide, November 23rd. I'll be in a movie theater with a lot of nerds. (laughs) Are you like fasting or doing alms or what's what's your preparation strategy here? Jammy Dodgers. What? Jammy Dodgers. It's sort of a shortbread cookie with jam in the middle. And one of the previous doctors, it was his very favorite snack. And you'll hear them reference it a lot on the show. That's lovely. I'll have some Doctor Who related homework for you later on. But first... Our guest this week is Ann Curzon, a linguist and professor at the University of Michigan. Unfortunately, I was unable to join you guys for this conversation, but luckily we had Becky Vivi available to help us out. She is a producer at WBEZ, and she's also a third-generation word nerd. We'll hear a little more from her later on in the show, but first, here's Ann Curzon. When I'm teaching the history of the English language, before I start class every day, the students teach me two new slang words. And I learn all kinds of great words from them this way, including words like adorkable, which I love, which is when someone is adorable in a dorky kind of way. And then last winter, they taught me about what they're doing with slash as a conjunction, where they can use it in a sentence such as, that new coffee shop is great, slash, do you want to go there on Tuesday? Which I cannot do with the word slash. <laughs> it's very odd, and that's why I was so interested in it. We tend to get new nouns and verbs. You'll get new intensifiers, so the wicked cool, mad cool, meg cool, uber cool, whatever that intensifier is. But you won't tend to get new pronouns, new conjunctions, what linguists would call function words. We don't tend to get new ones of those. So when the students told me about what they're doing with slash, I thought, now this is an innovation that doesn't come along too often in a linguist's lifetime. So that's one of the ways that they teach me about the language change that's happening all around us in terms of new words. Do your students ever bring you slang words that are just really far-fetched, that maybe they're just making up to (laughs) have an answer at the start of class? I don't think they ever totally make them up. What we do have happen sometimes is that it will be a word that is very specific to that student or that student and his or her friends. You can immediately tell when a student says, oh, here's a word, and they'll say the word, and I can look around the room and you can see how many other students have ever heard this word. And if the other students are looking skeptical, then I'll do a little poll about how (laughs) many students have ever heard 
this word, but with some words, one student will say it, and the room will just erupt in laughter because the students all know the word. Well, and young people do this with each other, but I imagine that you find this is true within just family structures and communities as well. There's certainly words that I use because my grandmother used them, and it took a long time for me to realize that's not a real word. It gets at the power of language, and that one of the things language can do is help establish or reinforce community and community membership. Why is that something that you think young people do more often? How is it a part of, like you said, forming an in-group and an out-group to have these sort of language markers for if you're in the know? We have a couple of things going on there. So language is one of the ways that we can establish community, be that family or larger structures. You know, there's a, a language of academia, which establishes you as inside the academy or outside the academy. The language of a sports team, which will establish you as an insider or an outsider. Then you have slang, and sometimes the group will be establishing community through slang, specifically language that is irreverent, playful, in some way trying to push on the establishment. And that's why it's often associated with young people or other groups who are marginalized because it's a way to critique or differentiate yourself from the mainstream. And part of being young is pushing against that, I think. Kids talking in sort of secret code with hashtags and slash and the different acronyms for texting. Do you think that that's almost creating a new language for young people that others may not quite understand? My sense is that young people have always found ways to differentiate their language from older generations. What I'm struck by as I talk with students about electronic language, about texting, is that while at first there were a good number of abbreviations, a lot of this kind of secret code, that as things have gone on, the spelling and the word choice in texting has become more and more standard. The students will tell me that they don't use a whole lot of abbreviations. They can be fairly critical of textures or texting that to them seems too cute or too full of abbreviations. One of my favorite examples of this is that the students were telling me, you know, we don't use abbreviations very much anymore. And I said, well, now I still use the abbreviation THX or TX for thanks. The whole room the horror. looked at me and they just said, <laughs> don't, don't do, that. do that. And I said, why not? And they said, it's rude. It seems like you don't mean it. You need to type it out. And then after class, a couple of students stayed after, and they said, you know, the language of texting is now getting so standard that they sometimes intentionally insert misspelling to capture excitement. To show they were so excited they couldn't take the time to let the autocorrect do its job. Exactly. Fascinating. Exactly. And I thought that wow. is brilliant. That really speaks to how standard this is becoming, that you are consciously inserting typos. <laughs> well, what I think is so fascinating about that, too, is sort of intentionally inserting misspellings or quotations or certain punctuation to express emotion. That seems so fascinating to me because yeah. I do it. Trisha does it. We all do that now, but I've never thought about it that way, that we're using these functions <laughs> to express emotion that you can't otherwise express while you're on electronic media because you're using words versus sitting in front of somebody where I can see you smile or nod. Well, that's right. We can't see the person. We can't read their face. We can't see their gestures. 
we get no tone. We have no idea is this person sounding excited or sad or serious. So if you're saying we're taking parts of written communication and using them to express emotion, I'm quite struck by what I've learned from students about what I call the repurposing of punctuation to capture tone. Just today, I was talking with a student who was analyzing a text message, and the question in it was, do you want to hang out or no? And at the end of that was a period. Technically, that's a question, and you would have a question there. But the period, he said, that's how you know that that question's a little bit angry or frustrated. Sure, you know how to read it, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) In linguistics, we'll talk about saving face. And if you think you've just said something that threatened your own face, you can use the hashtag to try to deal with that, to acknowledge that maybe what you just said sounded like you were on your soapbox or that it was a humble brag. Right. And that's another word that didn't really exist until recently. I mean, didn't that kind of derive itself out of a hashtag? It's my understanding that humble brag comes from Twitter. And I think it is such a great word Because now I can use it, for example, when I'm talking with students about writing personal statements, for example, when they're applying to graduate school. And I say, this is the ultimate humble brag, (laughs) is that you're trying to sell yourself to graduate school while sounding really humble all at the same time. I interviewed my grandma and my mother about this because both of them are former eighth grade English teachers. And my grandma, the first question I asked her was, hey, nanny, do you know what a hashtag is? And she said, I do. I think it's that thing on Facebook. You guys will put the hashtag and then you'll say something funny or ironic. And so she sort of jumped to the alternative use or the Uh new use of the hashtag. And as she was finishing her comment, she said to me, so what am I supposed to be saying? What is it really? (laughs) And I explained it to her. Have you seen this happen with language where a word exists or is invented for one purpose, and then it totally morphs in a very short amount of time, and people may never even remember the first purpose? Yes. Words change all the time. It's one of the very fun things about my job is that you get to track these, and then I get to say to people, well, did you know that peruse used to mean read carefully? And they say, it did, (laughs) because now everyone uses it to mean skim. But if you look in a standard dictionary, most of them will still say to read carefully or pour over and are just starting to get in the skim meaning. So it's not at all surprising to me to see a word like hashtag start to get used in new creative ways, especially when it starts in a place like Twitter, which in itself in some ways is designed to be playful with language, right? I mean, just the fact that we're so restricted in how many characters we can use. Ask people to play with language so that then people start playing with the hashtag is not surprising to me. Again, when I talk with students, they'll say, for example, when we're talking about how they read punctuation and the periods and that kind of thing, and they'll say, yes, but when I'm texting with my parents, I know that they often use punctuation in a much more standard way. And so I know how to read their text versus the text I'm sending with my friends. Is there an element of this as there is with spoken slang that as soon as it permeates the culture to a point where your parents know it, it's time for a new word? That's exactly right, because then it is no longer irreverent. It's no longer pushing the boundaries. It doesn't work well as slang anymore as soon as it gets picked up by your parents or other people in the establishment. 
I think with some of this electronic slang seeping into the spoken language, the verbal LOL and how nobody would ever say that. And there's that clip from Curb Your Enthusiasm where she's, quote unquote, verbal texting by saying LOL rather than just laughing. You you know what? A a date is an experience you have with another person that makes you appreciate being alone. LOL. LOL. You, you, You like saying that, don't you? It's cute, right? Nah, not, not, not really. What do you mean? I mean, if you're going to laugh out loud, why aren't you laughing out loud? Why say it? Why not just laugh? I am laughing. That's what that is. It's me that's laughing. No, you're saying LOL. You're verbal texting. I think that we're at a point with the hashtag where people have very strong opinions about using the word hashtag for effect or irony and verbally saying it as you saw Jimmy Fallon and Justin Timberlake do. Hey, check it out. I brought you some cookies. Hashtag homemade, hashtag oatmeal raisin, hashtag show me the cookie. <laughs> Sweet. Hashtag don't mind if I don't. Pretty good. Hashtag get my cookie on. Hashtag I'm the real cookie monster. Hashtag no, 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 no. There is a point, I think, when it seeps into the verbal language where people may think it's so ridiculous that they stop then using it in other places. I think that's right. And you see language has its fads, just like anything else. The linguist John McWhorter has made, I think, the very useful comparison to fashion, and that you'll have words that become fashionable, and they have their moment, and then they're gone. And I think a recent example of this is YOLO, Mm -hmm. You Only Live Once, Mm -hmm. which had its moment about a year and a half, two years ago. And I think some people got YOLO tattoos and um, it was part of graduation speeches. It was, it was sort of everywhere. And now it's not very hip. If anybody uses it, it tends to be used sarcastically. This is where lexicographers or the people who write and edit dictionaries are put in this very interesting position of tracking what we do, watching what we do, and trying to decide what new things are going to stick in the language and what new things aren't going to stick in the language. They don't want their dictionaries to just look fatty, like they just follow every fad and don't pay attention to whether anything is going to stick, but they also want to make sure that they seem on top of things and hip in that way. So if there are new words that are going to stick, that they would find their way into standard dictionaries. I got to say, Trisha, I wish I could take a class where one of my papers was to analyze a text conversation, especially between you and me. I feel like we do some pretty sophisticated texting. I also think that Anne is completely right about how we're using capitalization and punctuation to fill in all the void that electronic communication leaves versus in-person communication. Because when you put something in all caps, I know what that means. Exactly. Yeah. I very rarely read something from you and wonder if it's sarcastic or not. But I guess maybe that's just because you're such a sincere human being. (laughs) In any case, we've got a link to Professor Ann Curzon's article about the slash as a new conjunction on our website, nerdatpodcast.com. And you heard Becky Vivi mention in that conversation that she's a third generation word nerd. So we wanted to talk to her a little bit more about what it's like to come from such a long line of nerdery. I was raised by an eighth grade English teacher, which, at least in my middle school, I don't know about yours, was the year when everyone basically learned how to write. It was sort of your last opportunity to lock in good grammar or bad grammar. And my mom wasn't the only eighth grade English teacher in my life. Hey, Nan, it's Becky. Hey, Becky, how are you? That's my grandma, Nanny. That's how she always answers the phone. That's adorable. She also taught eighth grade English, and I should probably, by tradition, be an eighth grade English teacher. But alas, 
here I am. I'm not an eighth grade English teacher. I am a public radio journalist. <laughs> and a word nerd, though. And that a total stuck. word nerd. Yeah, that totally stuck. Anyways, when I started producing a segment around the proliferation of the use of hashtag in spoken conversation, I just had to call both my mom and my grandma nanny because I knew that they would have so many thoughts on this. So I started with nanny, and here's what she had to say about the hashtag. Well, it's that little pound sign in your message. That is the hashtag. To me, it's like a creative additional information about whatever it is that you've said And it's a chance for the person who does it to be a little bit creative and a little bit non-traditional. Now, tell me what I should add to that. (laughs) (laughs) So I explained to her what the original purpose of the hashtag was, but I was kind of shocked that she was sort of already on the hashtag version 2.0, sort of the second iteration, which is this kind of creative, snarky, snarky ironic use of the hashtag. So, and I should say, she is a very sharp lady. I never had an online world without my nanny in it. She was on Instant Messenger, MSN Instant Messenger, when I was in seventh grade. And she always has had an email address. She's very technologically savvy. People my age are railing against it, and they rail to me all the time about it. In fact, I have a friend that absolutely has a fit every time I even say the word Facebook and cannot believe that I would be on Facebook, considering how evil it is, you know. (laughs) And so because I like technology... I am willing to put up with that a little more. What I'm hoping, of course, is that people understand the difference between formal English and informal English, but I don't know. And that would be happening in my English class. I would be dealing with that topic, but I don't know that it is being dealt with in all classrooms. I'm looking for that maybe to break down as a result of the hashtags and the slash and the typing without vowels and, you know, all of that that's going on. But I can tolerate it better than most people my age because I love technology. Is there anything that has been added to the English language in recent years that you cringe at? Yes. <laughs> Snuck. Why? It, to me, is a real guttural-sounding word. I won't say what it rhymes with, of course, but it is guttural sounding, and we should be saying that we sneaked into a room. It sounds way better than I snuck in the room. There's something about the sound of the word even that goes against my grain. Should we have something a little more formal, guiding our language? My first impression is, yes, that would be good just so that people understand the standards, but I wouldn't ban any words. I like all words, even the four-letter kind. Do you think language is changing faster? Oh, yes. It has changed so fast since I retired. I would say previous to that, you know, when I was teaching English, I could teach the rule and always say, you may not speak like this, but this is the correct form, and this is what you should learn to do on a application letter or something like that. But now I don't know what I'd be doing in a classroom. I don't know that I would be able to be as forceful. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if it changed so quickly that I would have to eat my words, Beck. I also called my mom. So again, we're going with three generations. Her big point was essentially that language is supposed to change, but there's also a risk of miscommunication when it changes too rapidly. All of those nuances are shared with us and You know, we pass them on from generation to generation. 
As a result, language is a very living entity. If it didn't change, we would still be grunting and speaking Old English. <laughs> um, and we don't. We speak quite a bit differently than we did you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, or 500 years ago. My mom and I had a really interesting exchange toward the end of our conversation where she kind of admitted she actually doesn't really know how the hashtag is used. <laughs> it spoke to this insiderness of language. The hashtag is the pound sign, right? Yes. Okay, it's not the same as slash. No. Or quote unquote. No. Okay, so I guess that's one thing I don't understand, hashtags. I don't tweet. When you guys put the ironic hashtag into your speech, it means nothing to me. It's like falling on dead ears. <laughs> it's like a secret language. Mm -hmm. And is it secret on purpose? I mean, are you trying to keep it cryptic or do you want to communicate well? I mean, I think it's just funny. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, I think, William Shakespeare probably did those things because it was funny and now it's kind of fallen on dead ears because we don't understand his cryptic uh, way of speaking. Adults control formal language, so kids can control slang, right? They can make up a word for their group of friends and have it mean something. And it's a way of carving out some sort of sense of agency in the language you're using that then if it catches on, it becomes uncool, right? Right. Well, it's like the modern family Phil Dumphy saying. <laughs> I'm hip. I, I surf the web. I text. LOL. Laugh out loud. OMG. Oh, my God. WTF. Why the face? <laughs> you know, like, yes, you're right. I mean, but that's what's kind of fascinating. And I think as somebody who studied another language, too, looking across the globe and how sometimes words from different language seeps into other cultures. I know my friends and I will toss around Spanish slang, and it's sort of just a way of our communicating with each other. It's funny you mentioned that because it also reminded me of how in France they've actually established an organization to try to purify the French language because there are so many English terms that have come in like weekend or like fair do snowboard, you know. That and group so... actually banned hashtag. Oh, really? They did. Whoa. Earlier this year they banned hashtag. In America we don't have anything like that. We basically have right. English teachers and dictionary makers that get to kind of decide and guide what becomes our formal English. Thanks to Becky Vivi for that. Also, thanks to Nanny and Becky's mom. They're such sweet ladies. All right, homework, homework. What do you got? How about um, watch all 50 years of Doctor Who before the 50th anniversary special airs this weekend? Oh, no big deal. Great. Is that too much homework for one week? I mean, some of us like to be overachievers, so that's it's a little overwhelming, but, you know. And really, they took a break there for a couple decades, really. So we're only talking about 30 years of television <laughs> in the next five days. No big deal. What's your homework really, though? No, that's my homework, is to catch up on <laughs> Doctor Who. My homework is to catch up on Doctor Who from the first season in 1963 till now so that you can be fully prepared to watch the 50th anniversary special simulcast worldwide, which I'm going to be watching from a movie theater in Chicago with a bunch of my nerd brethren. Would that be the right word? Yeah. With a bunch of my nerd brethren? I think that's a great word. Okay. I was going to ask you, you know, I'm not totally caught up. I'm like still, I think, like halfway through season six. So I'm, you know, I'm doing pretty well. What do I do? Can I watch it or do I need to get all the way caught up before I go? Here's my recommendation for if you want to join the Doctor Who party, but you're not quite caught up yet. Yeah. 
the 50th anniversary special is crafted for the fans, and I think it's not going to ruin too much for you if you're not completely caught up with the current series. David Tennant is going to be in this. Matt Smith is going to be in this. Those are Doctors number 10 and 11. I would say if you've watched through the Tennant years, you're probably fine to watch this. You might be a little perplexed as to who Matt Smith, the 11th Doctor, and his companion are, but I wouldn't let that keep you from watching it if you want to go to a bar or a movie theater and just nerd out with your Doctor Who friends. Oh, good. I was hoping you'd say that. That's it for today. Don't forget to go to nerdatpodcast.com for links to your homework, more episodes, and some nerdy musings. Call us and tell us what you're nerding out about at 312-600-5638. Thanks to Professor Ann Curzon, Becky Vivi, and her mother and grandmother for joining us on this week's episode of Nerdette. Thank you for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Feel free to give us some stars. We do love stars. Our theme music is New Old Toys by the awesome sauce composer Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.